Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So there are certain things in our lives that start with such insignificance that they seem inconsequential, yet they lead to something big. So despite insignificance that can border invisibility, these things have an inevitability that they're leading to something far more grand. So there, there, there can be an, in, an inevitability despite invisibility. There can be an inevitability despite invisibility. For example, consider the crack in your windshield. Right? It begins with a tiny rock that you don't even see hitting your windshield. You may not even hear it, and you don't think it's a big deal. But then it grows and grows until you file an insurance claim or you fail an inspection, right? Or it's the holidays and there's a lot of parties happening and so think of that dessert that you're just going to try to bite of, try a bite of, right? Just to see what it's like because you've never had a cookie before. And then a few minutes later, you've got crumbs on your face, icing on your already ugly sweater and, and now you're talking about joining a gym in January, right? It was inevitable, even though it was invisible. Or maybe it's a show that you're just going to watch one episode of during the pandemic, but it's now two years later and you've seen multiple seasons of Love is Blind. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know who I'm looking at. All right, for my three sons this week, it was tripwires. <laughs> yeah, maybe I shouldn't say this publicly, publicly but whatever, it's, it's almost Christmas. I don't even know what that means, but it's almost Christmas. So these boys are fascinated with war. They read about war. Lego building revolves around war. They talk about new tanks or planes or boats that they built at breakfast and talk about which armor is best. And Anyway, all this stuff. They watch Lego videos on YouTube about war reenactments done in Lego. So it's, it's insane. Amazon boxes become foxholes in our living room. My four-year-old randomly wears a fake World War II helmet to breakfast because, you know, just in case... And my six-year-old came upstairs from Seven Mile Road Kids a few Sundays ago, and he showed me his coloring page that I was excited about because he's not great at coloring. But then he flipped it over. There was a tank on the back, and he had written the word boom. All right? So this is where we're at in life. So pray for Mariah and Naomi. Whatever happens to me, I've probably earned it. So over the last couple of weeks, um, as the kids have been fighting colds and such, they've watched multiple... Um, uh, Home Alone movies, Home Alone 1 and 2. Not Home Alone 3, Jess. Not Home Alone 3. And watching Home Alone allowed them to imagine a setting in which war could come home. That's right. After all, that is what Kevin has done in what seems to be a more acceptable way. So this led, all this to say, this led to them building tripwires this week with yarn and scotch tape. And it seemed insignificant enough. It really did. Though wisdom will tell you when your children build tripwires, someone will get hurt. It was yarn, though, so you're like, it's not really going to be a thing. You don't figure it's as dangerous. And they played for a couple of hours, and everything was great. There was no crying. There was no yelling. There was no broken bones. Those came through a different issue this week. And it seemed like everything was good. And before bedtime, all the tripwires came down. We were good. It seemed we were safe. And after they'd been sleeping for a while, we heard a thump. 
And then there was some crying as the door to the boys' room shut. Zechariah, who's four and was not sleeping with his World War II helmet on, came downstairs very upset and reported that he'd tripped over a tripwire. But there were no tripwires. There was not even one. We aren't sure what he tripped on, but it wasn't a tripwire. What's my point? Once the first tripwire showed up, it was inevitable that someone was getting hurt because of the tripwire. No matter how harmless the yarn and scotch tape appeared, someone was going to be hurt. No matter whether it was taken down, someone was going to get hurt by one of these tripwires. This tripwire just happened to be invisible, but it was still inevitable that someone would feel its presence in a significant way. There was inevitability even when it was invisible. As we pick up in Matthew chapter 2 today, the wise men who had traveled so far to see baby Jesus have departed. They came looking for baby Jesus, and they found him. Uh, Michael told us about that last week. And they've... Excuse me, they've now left, and Scripture had been fulfilled in Jesus' arrival. They had worshipped Jesus. They had given, uh, given him gifts, and then they left. Though Herod asked them to tell him when they had found the newborn king, the wise men were warned in a dream not to obey him. So they bounced. It was great. Good job by them. So read Matthew 2.13 with me, and we're going we're gonna to dive into this today. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So as Joseph is sleeping, an angel of the Lord visits in a dream and commands Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. You heard that. He's not telling them to merely leave the house or the neighborhood, or the town. God is telling him to move his family to Egypt. And he's doing this because there are plenty of, of Jewish people in Egypt. So. God is acting sovereignly to protect his son, to protect the Messiah, to protect the king. And not only does God protect Jesus that night, uh, God promises to tell Joseph when he's to leave Egypt later on. So there's a plan to not only escape evil now, but to return and conquer it in the future. The reality is that there's not simply a plan. There's a sovereign God who is working this plan. Joseph doesn't know the whole plan, and he doesn't need to, but, but we need to see that God is working his redemptive plan, and God is fulfilling his promises. And that, because that's the thing to see here. Jesus is a baby. He's humble and weak and seems like he'd be easy to reign over. He seems like he would be easy to deal with. He's insignificant, and his kingdom is seemingly invisible. But it's also inevitable. This baby will not be stopped. And as the song puts it that we just sang, Jesus is born a child, yet a king. He's born a child, yet a king. An unstoppable king. In verse 14, And he rose... And took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by, by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. So we've got Joseph obeying and they leave under the cover of night to go to, to Egypt. 
not only in leaving immediately, but in their staying in Egypt until the death of Herod, we see Joseph obeying the command of God. This is awesome. He's obeyed. God tells him, and he does it. And in doing so, the words of the prophet Hosea were fulfilled. Now, I know most of you have, have got Hosea 11 memorized, but I needed to look it up. And so it turns out, if you were needing to look it up, what you would see is that Hosea is about the exodus. Hosea chapter 11 is about the exodus. When God's people were freed from under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you remember this story, way back in Exodus, Pharaoh was treating God's people horribly. And God heard their prayers and redeemed them through a series of plagues and through the splitting of the sea. And I won't read it all, but Hosea 11 begins like what Matthew's quoting here. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Then the next few verses, if you were to go back there, the next few verses tell of how Israel was wandering away and wanders away from the Lord and how they will be slaves again. But then towards the end of the chapter, some really good news shows up. It's good news for us to hear. Through all of his people's wandering, through all of his people's foolishness, through all of his people's sin, God won't give up on his son Israel. He won't. He won't give up on his people. In fact, he will restore them. He'll bring them out of Egypt. That's the promise that God will fulfill when Jesus comes back from Egypt. God is fulfilling his promise to restore his son and in doing so, is restoring his wandering people. Now we move on to verse 16 in Herod's awful plan. Then Herod, this king, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or younger or, or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Sometime later, Herod realizes that he's been tricked by the wise men. He told them to come back once they found the baby because he knew the baby was going to be a threat to him. Herod was worried that this baby would cause him harm by challenging his kingdom. And he knew he had to deal with him first. So for a moment, let's consider that. That too, Herod is answering a question that we all must. If Jesus is a king, what does that mean for me? If Jesus is a king, what does that mean for me? How will his authority change my life? Will I submit to this king? Or will I oppose him with all my might? What will I do? So Herod's answering a question that we all must. And for Herod, this baby had to be dealt with. Because this baby was opposing his kingdom. Herod was worried that this baby would bring authority that Herod couldn't handle. So when the wise men did not come back, Herod was now at a disadvantage. He had no clue which baby was the threat to him, and he was behind schedule in handling him. And as a result, he decides to execute all the babies, all the baby boys in that region. So as, so as he seeks to secure his own rule, any boy less than two years old in that region would be murdered. And we don't have exact numbers, but reasonable estimates tell us that that was two or three dozen innocent babies killed because of Herod's sin, because of Herod's commitment to his own kingdom instead of God's. 
And then again, we should also be reminded of Pharaoh. The Exodus theme stays here. And how he dealt with God's people back in Exodus chapter 1, where he too executed all the baby boys. So we can imagine when this is happening, all, that, that all this would have done to those mothers and all this would have done to those families. And Matthew 2, 17 and 18 tells us, it says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Because they are no more. Weeping, loud lamentation, an inability to be comforted. All of this is spoken of in Jeremiah 31. And it perfectly describes what it would have been like for these mothers as dozens of these baby boys were taken from them and executed by Herod, a king desperate to protect his own kingdom. What you may not know from this quotation is that Jeremiah 1, or 31 is a glorious and hopeful chapter about an incredibly bright future that's ahead for God's people when they're restored to their land. See, their sins were forgiven, were going to be forgiven, and they were thriving. That's what Jeremiah 31 is about. And later on, the verses of Jeremiah 31 are quoted by Jesus himself. And the writer of the letter of Hebrews tells us that Jeremiah 31, 33 is fulfilled in Jesus. Just hear these words. For this is the covenant that I will take with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, I'm, I'm telling you that, that, that Jeremiah 31 is, is glorious and, and bright and hopeful future there. And right in the middle of that chapter is this verse, Jeremiah 31, 15, which is the one that, that Matthew quotes here. that says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's in the middle of this glorious chapter. And it's a terrible verse to read. And it would have been a terrible verse to live. But we got to understand what's going on here. And it's that Rachel is representative of the mothers of Israel. See, way back in Genesis, Rachel was Jacob's wife. And she died giving birth to a son on the way to the promised land. And she was buried in Bethlehem near Ramah. Her children, too, had to leave the promised land. And all of this makes Rachel this representative of the mothers of Israel. So that's why they're talking about Rachel here. And these moms, the mothers of Israel, is being talked about by Jeremiah, would have watched their sons go off to battle and not return. So we've got Rachel, this stuff happening to Rachel way back then. Now we got this stuff happening in Jeremiah's day where these mothers of Israel, they would have watched their sons go off to battle and not return. They would have watched their sons be taken captive to other lands. These moms would have watched their sons be taken away so that they wouldn't be a threat in Israel. So we got to catch all this. These moms too are seeing their sons depart. Not only from this land, but from this life. And there's this weeping, and there could be no sadder place than Ramah. There could be nowhere sadder. 
And that's the tension because that's in the middle of this chapter about this incredibly bright and brilliant and satisfying future of God's people. Evil will continue to attempt to reign in Ramah. Even in Jesus' day, we see it here. But attempt is the key word there. See, evil's time is short because there's an unstoppable king. Evil's time is short because there's an unstoppable king. And we see this because God is preserving Jesus, baby Jesus, from his death. And he does so in this way that fulfills the prophets. It's not only the heartbreak of that one verse in Jeremiah 31 that shines through. It's that there's a brighter day coming. There's a brighter day coming. And God preserves Jesus so that he can do what only this king can do. Atone for for his people's sins on the way to conquering every evil. Every injustice, every bit of satanic ingenuity hell-bent on destroying God's image in man, including the very evil devised to try to kill Jesus as a baby. See, this Jesus was born a child, yet a king. A king who will return to put away all sin, all tears, all death and pain forever. And Herod was right to be fearful of his kingdom because God was working a plan that made evil's end inevitable. Let's continue in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Just as promised, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him it's time to head back to Israel. Herod was dead and all those seeking to kill Jesus were they're dead too. In Matthew t- verse 21, 2, 21, 22. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Even with the angel leading, I want us to see this. This was hopeful to me. Even with the angel leading, Joseph is scared because he hears that now Herod's son's ruling over there. He didn't want to put his child in danger, um, so he's afraid. And what's interesting about this is that Joseph had been led previously so that Jesus wouldn't die. And now he's scared to obey the command to go back because there might be bad people there. And we may identify with Jesus here. With, with Joseph here. Because God can lead us through something really hard, but the next earthly sign of trouble still brings about a trembling and, and a defiance about us. And it's so hard to keep faith. So hard to keep believing when everything around us makes it seem like obeying God is leading to death. Not life. But who we will obey. Who we will uh, uh, like believe in. Is what's so crucial. Will we believe in the earthly ruler or the one who was born a child, but yet a king? And notice that God doesn't leave Joseph here. He doesn't leave him here. God is kind to Joseph. And verse 22 tells us, God warns Joseph in a dream. Being warned in a dream. 
God gives Joseph a merciful warning to obey. And Joseph responds. Joseph responds. I want to point that out because sometimes it's very hard for us to see the mercy of a warning. And he went, verse 23, and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So we've gone through all this and we see that God's sovereign action and Joseph's response to God's mercy again lead to the fulfillment of what was spoken of in the prophets. In chapter 2, this is now five times over the, the last couple of weeks, we've seen that God's sovereign action has brought about fulfillment to a prophecy. But this time, there's no single passage being fulfilled, but instead it's a summation. It's, it's like a, a bunch of different uh, prophets that have said things that are being fulfilled here. And, and so the thing for us to see on this one is that Nazareth wasn't somewhere that you'd want to be from. It was a little town with no real significance and no real hype to it. In John chapter 1, later on, we're going to see Nathaniel say, can anything good come out of, of Nazareth? So when people brought up Nazareth in those days, they were trying to hurt people's feelings. You know what I'm saying? I know what I'm saying, and here's why. Because this is the way you all look, look at me when I say I'm from Arkansas. Yeah, now you get it. Now you're like, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah that's it, right? So when people bring that up, they mean, they're trying to say bad things, right? Um, by the way, which one of us looks like Jesus in this story? Um, so I'm, just, I'm saying it's in the Bible. Um, but here's what's said about Jesus in Isaiah 53 too. For he grew up before him like a, uh, yeah, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. See, Jesus would be despised and rejected his whole life from when he was born, a child, and yet a king. And Herod despised him so much that he killed dozens of other babies trying to destroy Jesus. And Jesus was despised then to when he grew up and was ridiculed for coming from Nazareth, to when he was nailed to that old rugged cross and mocked for being king of Jews. Yet through it all, his majesty was often invisible to those that were blinded by sin from seeing it. But it didn't change the fact that this king was unstoppable. See, Jesus was born a child, yet a king. An unstoppable king. An unstoppable king. So this morning, and as we're celebrating this year, we should realize, celebrating Christmas, we should realize the tension of all this. This king is a baby that seems so weak. You can imagine how harmless he must have seemed. Even like... He just must have, he must have been so harmless seeming. And even after the wise men bailed on Herod, Herod still thought he could deal with them. And that's the thing. Jesus seems so harmless so long as he's kept in his place. So long as he's kept in his place. Or so long as he's put in his place. And that's our temptation. It was Herod's temptation. It's our temptation too. To put Jesus under our authority or to find a way to limit Jesus' authority, or to limit Jesus' rule in our lives. 
So one question we should be asking this morning is, how are we like Herod? How are we rejecting Jesus as king? And even more, how is that damaging others? Because it doesn't just hurt us. So where are you fighting Jesus' authority? Where are you not submitting to him? What neighbor is Jesus calling you to love, but you'd rather not? Who is Jesus calling you to serve, but you'd rather not? What's he calling you to give that you refuse? What sin is God calling you to turn from? You don't want to. We need to be asking ourselves this. Because we think Jesus is only so dangerous as we allow him to be. And Herod felt this so strongly that he tried to kill him. For us, it's far more subtle. We'll hear his words when they are to our liking. And we'll hear his words to the point that they don't interrupt our plans or demand I submit to him. But then we can ignore him the next moment. As if he's not the one who has come to save the world. As if he's not the one who's come to save me from my sins and save you from your sins. So this king is a baby. But this baby is also a king and he can't be kept in his place. Herod didn't outlast him and neither will you or I because he's a king and he's the real one. Jesus is an unstoppable king who won't be defeated. No matter how powerless he looks or how powerful the opposition is. Even when that opposition is death. For he not only came and lived a sinless life and died a perfect death in this world. This unstoppable king, born a child and yet a king, would go on to conquer the grave He conquered the grave. He came fulfilling promises of God. And he'll return to live forever with his people. So let's take hope in this unstoppable king. Because he's for us and he's with us. And I hope you catch in all this, there's not only the chance to oppose him, there's a chance to hope in him. Right? That's the reason that, those verse, that that verse in the middle of Jeremiah about the weeping and the sadness, that's why we need to hear that too. Because there's a, uh, there is such a glorious and bright future. No matter how dark the day, yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And that's reality. There's only one true king, and that true king is not Herod. And that true king is not you. That true king is not me. His name is Jesus. The seven mile road, let's respond to Jesus as such. Let's worship him as such. Let's hope in him. And let's live with this one true king as all of our hope and our security and all of our joy. Would you pray with me?